Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, uh, this morning I feel with great intensity your Apostle Paul's description of who we are. We are jars of clay. We're clay vessels, common vessels, common containers, Lord, and yet you fill us with your treasures. We have these treasures in jars of clay. So, Lord, I pray now that as the preacher of your word that you would fill me with treasure and that this treasure would come from this clay pot and would bless abundantly all the other clay pots in this room and that we would go out of this place filled to overflowing with the good things of God, ready to be agents of transformation and the very presence of your body in the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is the penultimate, next to the last, uh, in a series of sermons called Keeping Christianity Weird. Keeping Christianity Weird. And that phrase, keeping Christianity weird, actually comes from uh, Dr. Russell Moore and others who have said that the project of Christianity in the 21st century, as we move into a time that is rather post-Christian in our culture, is not to conform and be normal in our culture, but to retain a prophetic form of weirdness so that the culture sees us as distinct and clearly different, but in a way, God willing, that is life-giving and beneficial, salt and life, light in our culture. And Christianity is inherently weird because in every generation it challenges the underlying assumptions that are the conventional wisdom of the age. In every age, the conventional wisdom, what the Scripture calls, quote-unquote, the world, which is, actually, which is actually just the anti-God impulse of human society lived out corporately. In every age, the gospel stands in contradiction to the conventional wisdom of the world. And much of the project of false teaching, which we heard so much about in the, in the lesson from 1 Timothy and again in the gospel lesson, much of the project of false teaching that actually bubbles up within the church is to try to make the Christian faith more palatable to a world that is in opposition to God. Much of the project of false teaching is to attempt to accommodate and to conform to those assumptions that are in the world while still maintaining a veneer of Christianity. In other words, it keeps Christianity on the wrapper, but on, ins- on the inside it is simply the world. The packaging is Christianity, but the content is just the world. And that's the trajectory, unfortunately, we see in many mainline major Protestant denominations in the Christian, once Christian West. And I am deeply grieved when I see it hit so close to home. Recently here in Winston-Salem, one major downtown church had a congregational vote that overwhelmingly placed that congregation on a trajectory that was in in direct contradiction to the clear teaching and commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and of the faithful witness of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. 
And that little event is just a microcosm of the seismic shift that is repeated in every, every community across this land where people are departing the Orthodox Christian faith and practice for a revised religion that may outwardly remain, uh, have some of the trappings of the Christian faith, but real ha- really has no moorings in Scripture whatsoever. But we shouldn't be surprised by this because we heard the scripture in Matthew's gospel where Jesus clearly teaches in the gospel lesson that in the last days there would be many false teachers, many false teachers. And Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that in the latter times some will depart the faith and go after false teaching. And while this has happened over and over through the course of the centuries, it seems to have reached a new level of intensity in our generation. And so this morning, I want us to do two things. I want us to actually look at that text from 1 Timothy that we heard read already today and work through that. And then at the end of this sermon, I want to examine the root of the false teaching that threatens the Christian faith in the once Christian West today. And beloved, rest assured that whenever the church holds fast, holds fast to the apostolic faith, we will definitely be keeping Christianity weird. It'll be weird. The scripture says that many will depart the faith. So what, what is this passage in 1 Timothy addressing? It's addressing those, it says, in the latter times, some will depart the faith. So what is it addressing? Well, it is addressing those who formerly had appeared to actually be followers of Jesus Christ. If you depart the faith, it means it looks like at one point you were in the faith. And so they seem to have actually been believers, followers of Jesus, and these people abandoned the faith, and that's what we see in our own day. What could possibly motivate this kind of falling away? Well, if we... 2 Timothy chapter uh, 4, so we went over from 1 Timothy to 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul gives us one biblical answer of the motivation behind this falling away from the faith. People accept false teaching because they they prefer it to the truth. They choose false teaching, they choose a false teaching that will validate their passions and appetites. And here's what Paul says, listen to this, for the time is coming. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, for the time is coming when people will not put up with, listen, when people will not put up with sound teaching. They won't endure it. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So the motivation here is that we want to accumulate those teachers who will validate our passions and appetites. One of the things that happens here at Christ Church is that we have people come in one Sunday as guests. I hope you're not one of them if you're a guest this morning. They hear one sermon... And they are right out the back door again because while this is, in fact, I believe, one of the most genuinely uh, loving congregations I've ever served, and by the way, I can prove it because you put up with me, (laughs) we are also very truthy. We've got a lot of truthiness here. And the truth kills our flesh. The truth kills. Kills our idols. 
It offends our passions. And it calls us out of complacency into a crisis of decision. Will I love the truth and follow the Lord of life? Or will I go looking somewhere else for a teacher who will scratch my itching ears? And just like the rich young man, when the truth of Christ makes a claim over our lives, uh, all this I've done since I was a child, teacher. One thing you lack then, young man, go sell all you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And faced in that moment of decision, that moment of crisis, that rich young man, the scripture says, went away sad. And many go away sad. And along with this impulse to heap together teachers having itching ears, one of the things that drives the lurch into false teaching is this. We always want to sit at the cool kids' table. We always want to sit at the cool kids' table. I don't care if you are in elementary school or you're all grown up. You still want to sit at the cool kids' table. Heretics, it turns out, are often the cool and popular kids. <laughs> Historically, that's just true. One of my favorite heretics, Pelagius, a British monk, monk of the 5th century, by all accounts was a delightful human being. Everybody loved Pelagius. But his teaching had to be condemned by the great St. Augustine. And another example, in the early 4th century, the whole Christian church was almost completely overrun by the heresy of Arianism. Arius, the arch-heretic Arius, taught that the Son of God was a creature that he had been created and that he was not the co-eternal second person of the, of the Holy Trinity. That a form of that heresy still exists today in what's called the Watchtower Tract Society, better known as the people who show up on your doorstep wanting to uh, come in and talk to you, the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's Arianism. Almost all of the bishops who were influential in the ancient world, and all of the political rulers who had at least overtly accepted Christianity, had also embraced the heresy of Arianism. And one man alone, one little bishop, and I mean that literally, one little bishop in the city of Alexandria in North Africa by the name of Athanasius, a man who was so despised by his contemporaries that he was derisively called the Black Dwarf, this African bishop stood alone for Christian faith, Orthodox, biblical Christian teaching. He was so unpopular, so alone, that in his stand against heresy, that the catchphrase became in that day, and still continues to be used occasionally, Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world. One man standing for Orthodox Christian belief against a whole world of Christians who had embraced a heresy. And he alone stood for the Christian faith. Everybody else wanted to sit at the cool kids' table. And every Sunday, we actually validate the truth of what Athanasius stood for, when after this sermon, we will stand and say the Nicene Creed, which is the creed that Athanasius gave us. He was instrumental in passing down that. So one man did succeed in standing against the tide of heresy. 
And while false teaching is promulgated by human agents, the Scripture says, who are insincere liars or hypocritical liars. In other words, they know, they know that there is, well, here's the deal. There is an ulterior, ulterior motive behind their false teaching. There is some other motivation. They are hypocritical liars, the Scripture says, and they have their consciences seared as with a hot iron. In other words, they don't care. It doesn't bother them. They have no twinge of conscience about leading people into destruction via their false teaching. Even those, those are the human agents that bring these false teachings. The real ultimate source of false teaching is demonic. Now the Spirit, Paul says, expressly says that in the latter times, in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Our spiritual enemies, and we have spiritual enemies, those angels that rebelled against God and followed Satan, want to destroy human flourishing. Jesus said in John chapter 10, he sums up their motivation. He says that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and that is the motivation of our spiritual enemies, to kill, steal, and destroy. False teaching ultimately shatters the image of God in each one of us if we embrace it. It leads us down paths of spiritual, but also mental, physical harm and damage. And it will ultimately separate us from the living God for eternity. In other words, if we embrace false teaching, it has the capacity to damn us. I told you we were truthy here. (laughs) The way this false teaching that Paul speaks of gets worked out in at least this passage is that it fosters an improper relationship with the created order. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. In other words, the false teaching that Paul is referring to here seems to have been an early form of the heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught this, and you've heard me speak of this before. It taught that only the spiritual realm, spirituality, spiritual realm was good, but the physical world was irreparably evil. And what really mattered in Gnosticism was to try to try to get our inner self that, and what the Gnostics used the term, they used the term, the divine spark. And you still hear that phraseology today. They wanted to release the divine inner spark, that real, the real you, the spiritual you, to release it from this encased meat prison that we call the body. And to enable us to live separate from, detached from the material world. And so things like the union of marriage, the physical uniting of a man and woman in the bond of marriage, that physical expression, since it was a material expression, was inherently bad because it's material. And Lord knows food's got to be awful too. Because here you are, you're just taking food into your body, which we know the body's bad. And here you are, you're just stuffing more material stuff into it. It's a horrible thing if you're Gnostic. 
And so the project of Gnosticism is to avoid sex and food and any other taint of the material world as much as possible to develop the inner spiritual person, which is the divine spark, so that it can be released at the moment of our death and return back to God. And beloved, that heresy is alive and well today. There are people who think that uh, they are promoting Christian doctrine when they say that only the soul is important. And we should only, listen, you Christians should just focus on saving souls. Well, it's really interesting to me that the way that the Savior saved us was not by through some spiritual exercise, but by getting his physical body nailed to a tree. It seems that God thinks that there's something important about the material creation he's, he's, he's given us and that the means of salvation have a very physical connection. Back during Pope Francis's recent visit, one pundit on a politically conservative website just gushed forth classic Gnosticism when she opined, I'm not sure who Pope Francis's religious advisors are, but it seems they've forgotten that the gospel isn't directly aimed at helping the poor or averting supposed environmental disasters. And here's what she says the gospel is. The gospel is centrally about saving our eternal souls. Then by, by goodness gracious, folks, if it's only about saving our eternal souls, Jesus certainly went about it in a weird way by being scourged and crucified. The gospel is centrally about saving our eternal souls, about addressing spiritual, not material poverty. Yes, the material world is broken because of sin, she says, and she's right about that. And it will be restored after the last day, she's right about that. But then she goes on to say, that's an effect. It's not the focus of Scripture. What's primary is souls. No, that's not true. What's primary is the whole human person, body, soul, and spirit. God didn't just create us as immaterial souls. He created us as embodied beings. And we will confess this morning in the creed that we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. We believe that God's intention for humanity is to always have an embodied existence within a new glorified body, just like Jesus has. You see, the Bible clearly teaches, far from the Gnostic view, the Bible clearly teaches that God's material creation is very good. Genesis 1, 31 is at the beginning. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. Christians think the world that God made is very good. And Paul reiterates this when he writes that marriage, the marriage union and food and everything else physical for that matter are created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything, listen, listen, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. When we use God's good creation ordered in the way that God intended to be used as revealed in his word, sanctified by the word of God and prayer, revealed in his word, and in a way that results in thanksgiving to God, then this created world remains very good indeed. And so the great modern hymn writer, Brian Wren, wrote this hymn that you've never sung. Because it scandalizes my inner Gnostic. (laughs) Scandalizes it. Listen to this. It's Good as the Flesh is the title of this 
him. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the birthing, the milk in the breast. Good is the feeding, caressing, and rest. Good is the body for knowing the world. Good is the flesh that the world, word has become. Good is the body for knowing the world, sensing the sunlight, the tug of the ground, feeling, perceiving within and around. Good is the body from cradle to grave. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body from cradle to grave, growing and aging, arousing, impaired, happy in clothing or lovingly bared. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Isn't your Gnostic getting scandalized? Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. In his right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh, longing in all as in Jesus to dwell, glad of embracing and tasting and smell. Good is the body for good and for God. Good is the flesh that the word has become. And the pinnacle of God's good creation happens at this altar where God will take groceries and unite us to Christ. And while Gnosticism is still kicking around today, it's cloaked. It's cloaked, and the, here's, I told you I was going to kind of bring it around to where we see false teaching most effectively revealed in our own culture. It's kicking around cloaked in the reactions to what is called 18th century enlightenment, the age of reason, and I'm not going to ask you to remember your Western civilization course. But let me, exp- let me tell you what it, what it comes to us as. It comes to us under three headings. I, and, and don't worry, I'm going to get into this very briefly and explain it. Romanticism, existentialism, and emotivism. There will, uh, get out your blue books. <laughs> no, don't worry, it's not going to be like that. This is really important. The romantic movement was this. Listen, this because this is, we don't realize it, but this is what motivates most of the thinking and assumptions and conventional wisdom of our culture right now. But you need to listen to me. People never thought like this before the 1800s. This is brand new in the scheme of things. So what is Romanticism? Well, the Romantic movement of the 1800s, the 19th century, reacted against what it saw as the cold, rational formalism of... The Enlightenment. The Romantics stressed these things. The importance of inner feeling and of actions that flowed from those inner feelings. And so you move from, listen, okay, let me give you a musical example. Now, um, yes, if you cut me, I do bleed bluegrass. (laughs) But, But I want you to know I've listened to other stuff too. And I love Bach. I love the Baroque precision I mean, Bach is one of the greatest apologetics for the Christian faith I could ever think of. So I love the precision of Bach. But what happened after Bach's precision and all that kind of stuff was the emergence of the Romantic movement in music. And so we, get, we go from Bach to another B, Beethoven. And Beethoven is the one that has those swelling, emotional things that just grab your guts and make you swell with emotion in some way. And I think all of us know the Ninth Symphony, whether we know we know it or not. It's that they, he took Schiller's poem, Ode to Joy, O Freundinich Dieserturner, aber froh. I got to say German in church. Woo-hoo. <laughs> 
And he, and he, he takes that poem and it's, you know, da 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 And it just grabs our inner being and we, we're motivated along with that. And it's, that's the Romantic movement. And so the Romantic movement advocated the spontaneous, the unfettered, the subjective, the imaginative, the emotional, the inspirational, and heroic. And it does not like having anything imposed on it by someone else or by a system of religion or philosophy. Don't give us systems. Give us life and love and warmth and soul. And then in the late 1800s, late 1800s, early 20th century, there was something called the existential movement. And, you th- and, and again, you don't need to get out your blue books. Just listen. This is the thing where we, you know how everybody wants to be authentic? Oh, I, we need to be authentic. We use it in church sometimes. We talk about it. In fact, in the, in the early 2000s, you couldn't have a church mission statement unless you said you were going to be authentic. <laughs> so the early 20th century highlighted the notion of authenticity. To live authentically, said the existentialist, is to take the dangerous and difficult decision to reject structures and systems that constrict and impair our human freedom. This is N.T. Wright. And to live in accordance with our true, listen, to live in accordance to our true inner being, that is the way, that is a way to a kind of completeness of human fulfillment. You have to be authentic. You have to be true to your inner self. And we all believe that. That's a part of our conventional cultural wisdom. That, that, that the most important thing is Polonius' advice to Laertes, to thine own self be true. And then if... Romanticism and existentialism had a baby, it would be emotivism. (laughs) The emotivist movement insisted that all our moral discourse could be reduced, again, this is N.T. Wright, reduced in any case to statements of likes and dislikes. Murder is wrong simply means I don't like murder. Giving to charity is good means I like people giving to charity. From this point of view, following moral rules and following our own inclinations both boil down to pretty much the same thing. Often today, people are discussing moral choices as though moral choices were a matter of personal preference or taste. How I feel about it. Okay, so I need to be authentic to myself, and how I feel about things is what makes them right or wrong. Are we, are, we, are we good with that? Okay, here's the great false teaching of our age then. Freedom and flourishing come from my independent self-definition based on how I feel on the inside. And we had a great jurist, jurist of, the, of the modern age back in 1992, and I, uh, as he uh, gave a defense of abortion rights, said this, At the heart of liberty, and so this is ensconced in the American way of thinking. Please hear me. I know this is kind of heady this morning, but I want you to listen to this because this is the water we drink and the air we breathe. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, Anthony Scalia gave a scathe, you know, he calls this the sweet mystery of life uh, opinion. Uh, He doesn't like this. So, uh, but in, in other words... The heart of human flourishing is to define my own existence, my own being. That's my right. That's who I am. That's what most of us believe. 
And this thinking gets sucked into Christianity as a false teaching. Again, going back to uh, our father who was in Durham, uh, England, <laughs> N.T. Wright. I guess he's, he's up in Scotland now teaching, I guess. But N.T. Wright says that when modern Westerners think of Christianity, if they think of it at all, this is what they believe. Listen, this is what most people think about the Christian faith. Jesus offered a kind of radical freedom. Jesus accepted people as they were and urged them to discover their real identity and to be true to that essence. He encouraged people to throw the old rules into the trash can and take up the challenge of living spontaneously, authentically, in the freedom of the spirit rather than the slavery of the letter. That's what most people in the West think of Christianity, and that's how you get congregations voting to go away from the Scriptures. So personal autonomy and personal self-expression are seen as the highest form of good. But this is directly contrary to what Jesus Christ said was the ground of human flourishing. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him embrace his authentic self. (laughs) Oh, wait a second, I misread that. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Self-denial, the first step of discipleship, the first step of true human flourishing, in our world, self-denial is seen as a form of hypocrisy. In this be-true-to-yourself religion that most of us have been exposed to, Deny yourself. Self-denial is high treason against personal authenticity. And we see this right now in how the secular world views sexual sin. Now listen to me closely. We do in in the secular post-Christian West believe in sexual sin. Here is what sexual sin is. It means to deny your authentic sexual self, whatever that self is. That's how we now define sexual sin. So my inner identity determines my moral and sexual expression. To attempt to live against the tide of our inner authentic identity is a type of betrayal of my true self. And that is the logic that brings us now to the point where we are in the transgendered revolution. External reality says that I am male or female, but my inner truth, the authentic me is a person of a different sex than my anatomy indicates. And the Scripture prefigured this. It was anticipating this all the way back in the Proverbs. The ultimate result of self-defined autonomous living is not flourishing, brothers and sisters, but ultimately destruction. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right to us, our internal subjective selves, But the end of it is death. So here's the high Christian weirdness. Freedom does not come from... Listen, this is completely contrary to everything our culture teaches. Freedom does not come from autonomy of self-directed living. It comes by being in a relationship. Freedom is not being independent. It is being in relationship. In right relationship with God and by extension in right relationship with my neighbor, and in right relationship with God's very good creation. 
So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, in relationship with him through his word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not keep you in bondage, not make your life stultifying and dull, not shackle you to some external morality that's going to suck all the joy out of your existence. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We are most true when we are under the authority of God's truth. We are most free when we are under the authority of God's truth. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I know somebody right now who says, I'm my own boss, but they are a slave to alcohol. Don't tell me about my drinking. I'm my own boss. You're not my parole officer. And they are a slave. And they don't even realize it. Whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Relationship with God is what gives genuine freedom and human flourishing. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If you love Jesus in relationship with Jesus, following his commandments, you will keep my word. And then what will happen? My father will love him and he will come to him and make our, we will come to him and make our home with him. Relationship with Christ brings ultimate flourishing and freedom. I know that the cool kids are the heretics. (laughs) But really, brothers and sisters, the exciting, the genuinely thrilling thing is following the deep truth of the Christian faith as revealed in Scripture and the teaching of the church. We call that orthodoxy. And I want to close with this. This is G.K. Chesterton from his book. Every time G.K. Chesterton opened his mouth, an aphorism fell out. A proverb fell out. The man can't even have a good paragraph without having two or three things that you all just remember all the time. He said this about orthodoxy. He tried to straighten us out about orthodoxy. He said, this is the thrilling romance of orthodoxy. People have fallen into a foolish habit of speaking of orthodoxy as something heavy, humdrum, and safe. But there was never anything so perilous or so exciting as orthodoxy. It was sanity. And to be sane is more dramatic than to be mad. It was the equilibrium of a man behind madly rushing horses, seeming to stoop this way and sway that, yet in every attitude having the grace of statuary and the accuracy of arithmetic. It is easy to be a madman. It is easy to be a heretic. It's always easy to let the age have its head. The difficult thing is to keep one's own. It's always easy to be a modernist, as easy as as it is easy to be a snob. That self-righteousness of the heretics, man, I tell you what. To have fallen into any of those open traps of error and exaggeration which fashion after fashion and sect after sect along the historic path of Christendom, that indeed would have been simple. It is always simple to fall. There are an infinity of angles at which one falls. Only one at which one stands. To have fallen into any one of the, of the fads from Gnosticism to Christian science would indeed have been obvious and tame. But to have avoided them all has been one whirling adventure. And in my vision, the heavenly chariot flies thundering through the ages. 
the dull heresies sprawling and prostrate, the wild truth reeling but erect. Brothers and sisters, we have been given a deposit of faith. It doesn't seem cool to the present age. But today we remember Athanasius and we say the creed that he inspired and nobody cares what Arius thought. Be courageous, church, and stand against the false teaching of this age. That's where joy, human flourishing, love, and excitement truly are. And that is alone the faith that gives life that is truly life. May we always remain in it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.